Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. I'm excited to bring you today's episode of Finding Refuge. I interviewed my comrade Shankri Goldstein. Shankri is a program manager at the Mind and Life Institute. Trained in the lineage of integral yoga, Shankri has spent years connecting to breath, body, strength, movement, and energy. She is a certified yoga recovery instructor, an accessible yoga ambassador, activist, and founder of the State of Union Yoga Address series, Shinsara Yoga Festival, the Black Female Farmers Network, and the Black Yogis of Virginia Group. An avid social justice activist, for over a decade, she continues to find ways to help propel the voices of BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color forward and share their embodied practices. Shankri lives on a regenerative farm with her husband and more than 60 animals and livestock. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Shankri. It's good to see you. Hi, Michelle. Nice to be with you, too. Thank you so much for saying yes to being on the Finding Refuge podcast and saying yes to this conversation and connection. Of course. Yeah. I've been in a place of saying no, so it's exciting to be able to say yes to you. Yes. Thank you for saying yes. I understand why it's important to say no to many things. So thank you for making space for this. And I would love for you to share some about what you do in the world, what your work is, what you're passionate about. Yeah. So the primary goal uh, that I've been focusing on for the last, I would say a little over a decade is to just find ways that we can actively improve the lives of Black, Indigenous people of color and our Black community and the lived experience of the Black yogi in the yoga industrial complex. That's been kind of my underlying social justice movement energy for the last little over a decade. Beyond that, I'm a farmer. I live on a regenerative farm and that's a big part of my life. I'm a program manager for the Mind and Life Institute. I've been with them for a little over a year now, which is a nonprofit. And it was founded by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, a neuroscientist, a researcher, and a social justice activist. So bringing those three unique perspectives of the researcher, the contemplative, and the action, and how we move and bring human flourishing out into the world. So that's my full-time nine-to-five job. And then I have all of these other things that I'm super passionate about. I would love to know if farming is something that you've done your whole life or if that's something you came to later in life and how that happened. Because we've never had that conversation. I've been curious about that. And if you want to share, love to know more about that journey. Yeah, it's always really wonderful seeing all of the food that you're growing show up sporadically on your Instagram page. And I love connecting with other Black yogis, gardeners, farmers that really feel that deep connection to nature. I think that that's incredibly important to recognize that we're all interconnected with nature. We're all sentient beings. We're all capable of compassion, illusions, sensations, perceptions. And that's from the human level to the plant level to the animal level. And so a part of my journey with farming. It's all very new. I've only been, I would say, farming, farming for about three years now. And that started as just a small kind of backyard homestead 
vegetable garden. You know, I've planted flowers every spring and, you know, attempt to grow food over the years. And I really wasn't taking the time to educate and understand the importance of soil and how that impacts the way that your food is grown. And so just in the last three years, that's been a really healing process for me to connect with nature and earth and food and animals in a very different way. In many ways, it's actually shaped and formed the way that I practice yoga now. I call my form of yoga regenerative yoga, and that's kind of a play off of regenerative farming, which is the method that I use to grow my food and manage my land on my property at Waddleham Farm here in Virginia. So yeah, I'm very new to farming and a lot of it was just self-taught. You know, you have to kind of get in there and experiment, read books, listen to podcasts, watch shows, ask questions, join groups. You know, that's what I tell everybody is like, you don't have to come in with this background of, you know, years and years of farming or learning it from your parents or growing up on it in the country. It's like, you can be a city girl. I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in white suburbs. So I didn't have any connection to that. But I will say that in some ways, what I've come to understand is that ancestor connection to land-based practices is there and does resonate deeply and does kind of show itself in these very unique ways, the way that I interact with my plants, the way that I speak to them, the way that I give offerings before I plant something. You know, I might lose one of my animals and have to you know, do a burial. And so it's like that animal is offered back to the earth and I might plant a tree right there so that it's kind of like regenerating and feeding back into itself. So there's all these ways of like connecting back into our indigenous and our ancestor roots. It's why we were brought here as slaves was to do this work. And in many ways, we brought farming to the United States, you know, with the help of the indigenous and first people helping to lead that as well. Yeah, I appreciate what you mentioned about just the history and also ancestry and and remembering is what I hear and what you're saying as you're working with the land and your animals and your connection with the earth. And you mentioned an intersection with yoga, and I'm curious to know more about your practice regenerative yoga off of regenerative farming and just to hear more about how you see yoga. And in particular, because I know we're focusing and you named this a few times on Black yogis like particularly connected to Black yogis, how do you see that intersection showing up or playing out? Yeah, it's funny because I'm working on an article right now, a little blog post, it's called Yoga, Farming and Mindfulness as a Radical Practice. You know, we're all kind of creating these new ways to have radical practices. And I do think that being in relationship with the land for Black people is a radical practice. Just understanding the history of how you know, when Reformation first happened and, and we were first freed as slaves, we were the farmers. We were outnumbering white farmers. We had a significant amount of land when we were first freed. And then that was quickly taken from us and we had to earn it back. And so I do think that there's this kind of stigma and this disconnection when people are out there and they're slinging a hoe or slinging an axe and shoveling. It's like, there's this mentality of like, I don't want to be enslaved. I don't want to go back to that time where I'm sweating and doing work. I have a business, you know, I grow food, I grow livestock. And, you know, when I go to the farmer's market, I'm selling to white people. That's the reality. You know, I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's predominantly white community. The farmer's market caters to predominantly white audience. There's very little access for black people to come into those 
spaces, you know, you've got to really get into the community, you know, urban garden area to like reach that demographic or like create specific drop-offs for them. So in that way, there's that disconnection to access for food and food sovereignty. And then also just this like fear of coming back to the land. It's interesting. I've seen a lot of articles recently about sundown towns and how black people were kept off of national parks and we were segregated into specific areas. Camping for black people isn't like a norm. And that's because we were denied access to certain parts where camping was prevalent in these early times of national parks being created. So there's like this historical systemic, it's all related. And I just think that that's like such an important thing to discuss. And then in terms of the yoga piece, it's like by coming back and connecting with nature, we are ultimately connecting with the oneness. And there's something really powerful about being able to get your hands in the dirt and plant a seed and see it kind of grow from start to finish, you know, from seed to tree. And you're doing a mindfulness practice. There's patience that it takes to grow a garden. There's patience that it takes to plant a crop. And you could have a 72 seed tray flat and you might fill that thing up and maybe only five seeds take, Mm -hmm. you know? And so you've spent all that time through the winter nurturing those little seeds and maybe only five survive. And so you really got to check into your energy and, you know, check into your breath and the patience, the ability to like, sit with yourself, sit with the plant, sit with the land, your ability to interface with animals and see them as equal. Like I don't see my animals as less than, you know, I support them. That's a part of regenerative farming, you know, playing with these two words, repair versus reform. Mm -hmm. You know, reform is about making something that's bad, good, you know, and reforming it. And repair is actually like nourishing and healing it back to its original essence. And to me, that's the important part of the regeneration. And that's the important part that we as yogis kind of, we come into yoga very broken. You know, in many cases, everybody I've ever met that's come to the mat has come because it's been a significantly painful time in their life, you know, Mm -hmm. and they've had to like find something. They're reaching out for something to bring healing. And so that's what regenerative farming is. My practice has shifted. I used to be power yogi. I wanted to do vinyasa flow. I wanted to do sun salutations till the cows came home. And now it's like, I'm super stoked to have gotten Gail Parker's book in the mail this week and just understand that child's pose is a practice for me. That could be a whole yoga practice for me mm-hmm. in a single day, you know, or doing a restorative supported open pose lying on a bolster is regenerating my body. You know, I've learned to really create those boundaries and do things that nourish me back to whole. Thank you for sharing the connection between it all and the just centering wholeness in a culture that we know fragments us and works really hard to do that, especially as Black people and folks who are marginalized. And I'm curious to know more about what brought you to yoga, given what you just said about how, and I think this is so true that, you know, many of us entered into the practice either in crisis, right, or in response to a crisis that was happening in the world, if it was not directly happening in our personal lives, but affecting us. Could you share some about what led you to this path of yoga, which I know you're devoted to? Yeah, you know, I come from a family that historically has dealt with addiction and mental illness and suicide. That's not something that I'm disconnected from. And so I watched a lot of people in my family deal with anxiety, depression, suicide, drugs and alcohol abuse on both sides. 
And it was pretty profound to kind of watch it as a child growing up and then to get into being an adult and being like, I'm going to take control of my life. I'm not going to be like that. I'm not going to have to take medicines, you know? And, and it was like all of those things, like being conscious of what people think of you and you're in this identity crisis in your early twenties. And all of a sudden you're realizing that you're abstaining from eating food because you want to look beautiful and you're doing all these unnatural things to your body and your hair because you want to look more white and more palatable and acceptable to societal norms. And you're feeling a little bit more sad than you normally feel. And it's harder to get out of that sadness and you're crying in a bathtub and you don't know why, you know? And so that was starting to happen in my early twenties to mid twenties. And on top of that, I was in an, an extremely codependent dangerous relationship. And that relationship with my um, ex-partner lasted for 17 years from the time I was an adolescent into early mid-adulthood. And it was a very mentally abusive relationship. You know, it was emotionally abusive and there was a lot of adultery and things of that nature. And I stayed. And it was that energy of just staying in these bad situations, these bad mindsets, this bad energy, this bad codependent relationship And also recognizing that I was playing out a pattern that I'd watched all of my female ancestors play out. It was the exact relationship of my grandmothers, you know, and one was able to get divorced and move into a new relationship. It was the exact relationship that my mom had had with my father. You know, now she's remarried and I have a stepfather, but something shifted for me in 09 where I could see it. And the other thing I should mention is that I was dealing with all of that without taking medicine. You know, mm-hmm. and that works for some people and that doesn't work for others. But I was just very adamant. Like I didn't want to get, you know, hooked on pills and I didn't want that to have to be the way. And so when I was able to kind of step outside of myself and watch it like a show, that was pretty profound. And then I realized like I was in a job I wasn't loving. I need to do something different. And I took a two month trip, just kind of like spun the globe and just said, I'm going to go wherever the wind takes me. And I went to India and I went to Nepal and I went to Europe for a month. And when I went to India, it was like this wake up call. First of all, I didn't know anything about yoga. Didn't even really know yoga existed in 09 when I started this journey. And then I stayed at an ashram. Somebody was like, let's go to an ashram in the city where the Beatles made this album and hang out with the Maharishi. And I'm like, sure, why not? Like, I'm just traveling. Like, let's do it. And then to stay in this like $8 a week ashram and getting up and meditating and moving and doing all of these things and going out on the street, people are poor, but yet there's such happiness and love still when you take the time to talk to them. And it's just like, I have so much, they have so little, but they have this practice and they Mm -hmm. have these deities and they have this connection to like something bigger than themselves. And I've always had that longing for something bigger than me you know, whether that's like connecting back to nature and then the nature is the God and or the goddess or whatever, you know. So that was the start for me. And then I quickly came back and started practicing yoga in Richmond and went to a studio that sometimes I'd show up. I was the only student, you know, yoga was just starting to like really percolate and take off in Richmond in a big way at the time, you know, and I started linking up and meeting other black yoga teachers Mm -hmm. a year later, like Faith Hunter was on the cover of Yoga Journal and I'm taking classes with Jay Miles. And it's like, oh, there's other people that do yoga that look like me. And then people are telling me I should try to be a yoga teacher and did my training in integral yoga shortly thereafter. And so it's really been a process of understanding my pains and things that needed to physiologically, because they are in my DNA, that I had to kind of address. And those things still creep up. But the great thing about yoga is I've taken is not so much the movement, but the self-inquiry. 
you know, the being able to like step outside of myself and watch the show and go, well, what's that about? Like, even as I moved out of my abusive relationship, it was like, oh, that's why I did that. That's why I stayed. You know, you go into this place of questioning. That's a really big part of my practice is the self-inquiry work. And that is the work we are asking of, you know, of white people at this time. That is the self-inquiry practice that, that really needs to happen. You know, the stepping outside and and watching the show in a different way. Yeah. I mean, the meditation and concentration and going inward and noticing patterns and witnessing. And I'm really glad that you named, and that's what we're asking white people to do at this time, right? To watch the show, to witness and to transform behavior, right? To change conditions. There's so much going on right now. And so much of it is not new, although there are things that are new and things that are being illuminated, I think, in a different way. That's my experience of it and perspective. And I also know that I'm trying to make meaning of this moment of COVID and global uprising calling for Black Lives to Matter and trying to understand. I'm not really questioning why. I'm just trying to make meaning of it, which is what I think humans do. And so I'm curious to know how you're relating to this particular cultural moment and all that's going on and what meaning you're making of it right now. Yeah, it's interesting to be asking people to just acknowledge that Black Lives Matter. It seems like such a simple phrase, right? And the fact that we have to like beg for that does mess with your head. It just really messes with your head. Like, do they see me as human? You know, I mentioned that to you earlier. And that was when I talked to you back after George Floyd was murdered. It was really in this state of like questioning people's reality. Are they in the same reality that I'm in? I do believe that we're all kind of living maybe in these different states Mm -hmm. of reality and we're all having these different experiences. I totally get that. But at a certain point, you know, to get like the excessive amount of calls and, you know, do you see me? Do you think I'm racist? It was like, what is happening? Like, just take a breath. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's, It's okay. You know, this is not new to us. I totally recognize that it's new to you, but you know, it was this kind of like polarizing out of body, again, that witness state of just like, I don't even know if I'm in the same reality with some of these people, some people that I've known for years and years, decades and decades, yogis, people that are really supposed to be on this higher level of consciousness. And I think that's why it's so important to continue to talk about anti-racism and white supremacy in the yoga industry and draw the political elements into the conversation and the social aspects of it and the environmental aspects of it. Because as yogis, as mindful practitioners, contemplative practitioners, it's like we are equipped with the tools. At least we have been equipping ourselves. We're not all equipped, but we're, we're always students and learning. But we've been equipping ourselves with the ability to notice the mental chatter to notice the biases, the things that come up when we're in certain settings. And so it's like, because I'm able to notice that chatter, it's so much easier for me to look at somebody and see them as different. And then what's the story I'm writing about them in that moment and acknowledge that step back, step forward. You know, it's like, that's the work. You know, I say it a lot. If not us, then who, (laughs) if we can't do it, you know, how are we going to expect people who are living in these very limited communities and limited lived experiences to understand anything about our culture, about the state of our world right now when they're so isolated in their own bubbles and their own cultures. And so that's why I keep trying to bring it into the forefront of the yoga conversation Mm -hmm. as you do as well. And it's just, you know, what to make of this moment. You know, I don't know. We just keep getting shot. (laughs) 
Yeah. And it's crazy. It's crazy. And it's painful. And I mentioned it to you earlier, this disconnection for white people, you know, Rev Angel Kyoto talks about it a lot, the embodied experience. And it's like white people living in this place of intellect and the mind and strategy, and we got to fix it. And we want to be better. We want you to know that we're not racist, you know, and just being a nice, good person doesn't mandate you as not racist. You know, Mm -hmm. there's so many levels of things that we're talking about from biases and to microaggressions to the way you use words, the way you show up in spaces and create spaces. And yet black people continue to live in the body and in the heart, you know, and I feel like our body has experienced years of this judgment and trauma, you know, and going back to the conversation around slavery and farming, it's like, we have no sense of our history. You know, Marcus Garvey gives this incredible quote about people without knowledge of their past history, their origins, their cultures are essentially like trees without roots. And as Black people, we've been trying to get our tree growing for years. You know, the freedom from slavery and the reformation time was the ability to plant the seed. And there's this misconception that tree roots go down really, really deep, but tree roots actually tunnel out. And they spread. And that initial seed is called the radical seed. So in some ways, our slave ancestors were these radical beings that were taking a chance in this new world. And then we moved into this Black excellence period of the 1920s. And now we're creating our own economies, our own financial wealth. And all of a sudden, we're germinating, we're watering, we're growing. Our taproots are spreading out and they're small and linear and they're spreading. And then we get into civil rights and we get into Black Panthers and Black Beauty and the natural is beautiful. And it's like, ooh, okay, they're flowing out more. And now we're in this 21st century where it's like there's this whole interconnected web underground that is connecting Black people. And we're all plugged into it. Truly, I really feel that. Like I can look at you and feel your energy and, and I know and I can sense and we're all in the same place. And so there's that embodiment of, I see you. That's really, I see you because we're just all so just deeply connected through this root system. And that's like, there's something missing there. For me, my experience, this is just how I feel like with white people and that deep connection with their culture, with their people, with their ancestors, acknowledging what their ancestors Mm -hmm. did, you know, like I can see all the good and the bad and totally recognize it and move beyond it, you know, and not let it paralyze me. And there's something about like not being able to address the reality of their ancestors. And when they do, it just paralyzes them, you know? So yeah, I, I do think that you know, in terms of collective healing, that's where we're in this space, something because of COVID. And we've talked a lot about this, like we were forced indoors and we've already kind of shifted as a black people. Our taproot energy underground has been like, okay, this ain't the time to go out there and start shooting these white people back. Mm -hmm. No, we're going to keep healing, self-care, take an exhale to keep preparing for whatever is coming for us. And it's just interesting, you know, to see Jacob Blake, I think is his name, Mm -hmm. that just got shot seven times. And it's like immediately on the blogs and different things. It's like, now what are Black people going to do? We're going to go out there and start shooting. When are we going to ever do something back? You know, when are we ever, AR-15s, let's go out there and shoot. It's like, but we are not a violent people. Right. No, we are not a violent people. Like, please don't do that. Because then it just keeps reinforcing this, lack of humanity that is happening from the opposing side. There's something not, yeah, that's how I really feel about this moment. It's just getting into the experience in a different way, energetically, I think is imperative for white people at this point. So beautiful the way you talked about 
the roots and our connection and interconnectedness as a people and as Black people. And it made me think about transcendence in this way that, you know, I often say we can't transcend the culture as it is right now. Like I'm in a Black body, which puts me at risk. That's what I mean when I say that. Like that is a reality that we have to respond to and live with. And yet the awareness of the root system and our connectedness and the way you spoke about feels like a, I don't know if it's transcendence, but it's like being in that space of that awareness, I think allows me to not feel so imprisoned Mm. by the conditions that are present in the culture. And again, I don't know if that's transcendence, but it really struck me the way you spoke about it, that we can be in both of those experiences and awareness of what is happening and what could happen to us as we're recognizing like something much deeper something that is energetic, something that is about ancestry and being held and being grounded and being seen by each other. Like it's, it was just beautiful. Yeah. You know, those 1920 germinating seeds didn't water themselves. You know, Oshun came in and the ancestors came in and just said, let me just sprinkle a little holy water on them. You know, I really think that, and that again is the connection back to land, the connection back to land placing your hands in the dirt where our blood and our tears and our indigenous brothers and sisters, you know, first people have just been planted in the earth. And it's like that to me, there's something really powerful about that. Every now and then we'll find a rock that you can tell was probably chiseled back in, you know, when people were first kind of inhabiting this land and you can tell it was probably a little tool at some point, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just too perfectly chiseled out that, you know, the, the soil couldn't have in the water. There's no way they could have done that. And you find those things and you're just like, you just this deep connection with people. And that's the, the messaging to me when I find things like that, or if I'm interacting with my animals, uh, sheep, or if I'm, you know, hanging with my chickens, it's just like, to me, that's transcendence. That's peace. That's the refuge that, mm-hmm. you know, I think you're talking about is like this ability to Again, step outside of yourself and and realize like there's all these other beings. There's this blade of grass. There's this beauty in this, you know, feather. There's a beauty in the way that, you know, I can watch my sheep graze across the land. And while it's grazing, knowing that I'm supporting that process by creating grazing techniques that are then nourishing the soil and feeding back into itself and regenerating the earth. It's like all of this deeper transcendence. And I do feel like there's something really beautiful about black yogis where they have really leveled up. I do think they're on like a totally different leveled up wavelength in terms of the yoga practice and the yoga experience, because they really have to kind of go into these kind of deeper inquiry and compassionate states of being to show up in these all white yoga spaces and contemplative spaces. And it's, so there's just, I just have a deep, profound respect. And that's why I keep saying like, amplify the black yoga (laughs) teachers that are out there because they're talking about some stuff and doing some stuff that is just on another level. It's just on another level of how we show up on the mat. And yeah. And it feels rooted in our liberation. Like I think many of us go to the mat to be free in a culture that really doesn't want us to be free. And we want that for folks who are marginalized as well, right? And so whiteness does not equip white people to be tethered to this practice of liberation in the same way. Mm -hmm. Certainly there's some white people invested in liberation for all, but because we know that the culture set up in this way for us not to be free, I think many of us enter into the practice and aspire for that, right? To happen, Mm -hmm. for freedom to happen. 
And, mm-hmm. and recognize more is at stake, you know, because of how we're having to navigate our lives and navigate all white spaces and navigate whiteness at every turn. Yeah. So of course we're like innovating and engaging the practice in a different way because we're reclaiming liberation. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned refuge and I am curious to know, because again, so much is going on in this moment. And I asked you about like, what is it? You know, how do you make meaning of this? What do you think is going on? How are you finding refuge? How are you taking care of yourself at this time? What is bringing you peace? And you mentioned a few things that are bringing you peace. Are there other things you want to name? Yeah. So I've kind of been on a 19 month spiritual, what have I been calling it? Detox, I guess. (laughs) where my practice was very specific and I was touring and performing kirtan and was like super bhakti and was, you know, like, this is my practice and, you know, really into the movement piece and holding up where I got my lineage and my training on a pedestal and like, you know, guru relationships and just having this totally different relationship with yoga. And then I don't know, something just kind of like downshifted for me. And I just stopped to think about everything. This is around the time when like, People like Susanna Barkataki were coming out and honor your roots don't appropriate. And, you know, things are coming out about different lineages. And those are all things that have been said for years about, you know, different teachers and gurus. And so it's just, I don't know. I was just starting to like, again, as we do with many things that become big, and then you actually start to peel the veil back and you start to see the kind of the dirtier shadow work side of it. So that's what I was really starting to just kind of acknowledge was real for yoga and we know it, but at some point you have to kind of do the self-inquiry work to acknowledge it. And then stepping into a place of like right relationship with yoga, you know, just like I have tried to like step into right relationship with food and food sovereignty and right relationship with land. It's like, you got to kind of step back to step forward into a space that feels right for you and your body. And to me, it didn't feel right to like get up there and be chanting a mantra when I was feeling so wholly disconnected from it at the time. And again, just like a deeper understanding of our ancestors, our roots, you know, my people came from West Africa. And so I wanted to feel a little bit more connected to that side of my ancestry and seeing how our people actually brought in yoga and what was their way of doing these kind of more mindful based practices So I just kind of stopped everything and just had to exhale. And from like January through March, it was like I was a hermit. I was really putting a lot of energy into my farm at the time and putting in my terraced garden beds and doing all of these things. And what I realized through that process of focusing on my energy into land was like, oh, this feels really good. And I'm breathing. I'm acknowledging my breath and I'm practicing Nadi Sudhi without the hand mudra right now. And I'm seeing the beauty of practicing, focusing on the beauty of this flower and your chadak, you know, like seeing it and then zooming out and zooming, you know, it's like I was able to do those practices while nourishing back the land. So that felt really good. And then it kind of became a thing for me to start to understand that this experience that I was having, like, oh, how beautiful would this be for other Black yogis to have? You know, when I run a yoga festival on the side and I was working in a place where like in a retreat center where it was like out in the woods and bringing yogis out into this space. And I remember there would be this fear of like, I got to camp. I got to do this. I got to be in the dirt. I got to hike, you know? And it's like, yeah, you have to got to do those things. Well, you know, Black people don't do that. 
oh, well, I do it. We can do it. And then I realized like, oh, there's a disconnection here, mm-hmm. you know, culturally for some people, not all, for some and for white people too. I'm not generalizing, but it became like, this could be a really beautiful connection here. You know, how we could bring this to light. And my friend Adrian does it so well too. She calls it yoga on the land. And she's all about like bringing black people out to like the Grand Canyon and forests and doing yoga on the land. And so there is this movement to reconnect back to nature. And I think it's really imperative because right now we're in a war with Mm -hmm. ourselves. We're not even acknowledging the war with earth and with mother nature and the implications or the things that we're about to face in the next 75 to 150 years is crucial. You know, so as you start to have them babies and you're raising these conscientious kids, it's like, how are you also teaching them about the importance of what our ancestors were doing, where it's not this like large scale farming and large scale living. It was much more tribal, much more like about survival and living off the land and resilience and if we don't take those precautions and steps to come back into right relationship and a more minimal, smaller way of living, which is also a part of the yoga teachings, you know, like it's not about abundance. It's about selflessness and living with less and being appreciative of what you have. That will be the defining question as we slowly start to elevate past this race question, this race war into like the environmental war. We're already in it, but we're just ignoring it. But you know, the reality is, is that like the soil as it stands now, if we continue to till and graze the animals and grow food and spray pesticides the way that we do, I mean, the soil will not be here in 150 years. That is the truth. It will degrade away. Now you're talking about water issues and, and runoff and floods and fires and like there's so many deeper things that I think people are so scared to turn and face that they just keep ignoring what's coming. You know, just like we ignored what's coming with this race thing, you know. It's mm-hmm. like when I go into some of these consulting things, it's like I was trying to tell you this five years ago that this right. was coming. Anyway, it's it's a very interesting time to be alive and a powerful time where I think can shift. This is the time to shift and start to regenerate and repair what we've done. Truly, I feel that way. And we have to. We don't really have another option. Like, is this the moment, people? We have to make a shift. Right. In all the ways you just named. And I so um, appreciate what you said about, you know, it's an interesting time to be alive and also a powerful time to be alive. Like, it's clear to me I'm supposed to be alive right now in this lifetime doing what I'm doing. That feels quite obvious to me and is reaffirmed in a lot of ways even though it's a really also at times despairing and scary time to be alive, but that these multiple truths are are happening at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Extinction or liberation. That's where we're at as a people. That's right. So hopefully liberation is yeah. where we'll go. Yeah. That's what we want. I would love for you to share how people, if you would like people to connect with you and what you're doing, the work you're doing, how they can do that if that's through social media or some other way that you like to connect with people or have folks follow what, what is going on for you? Yeah. So two passion projects that I'm really excited about right now are the State of Union Yoga Address, which Michelle was one of our panelists and our guests for the month of August. And that's basically a virtual space that we're a six-month series. We're hoping to pioneer into a, a longer-term vision and maybe season two, season three, bringing Black farmers into the conversation, things of that nature. And that is a space where we can kind of come together and just very collective dialogue 
And you get a peek at the kitchen cookout or the the cookout, the kitchen table, you know, with mm-hmm. all of these incredible black practitioners and leaders and, you know, internationally well-known people to just chop it up and, and chat. And I run that with uh, my brother, Jay Miles. And, and the other project I'm really excited about, actually, I'm in the kind of like the final stages of design work for the concept of the brand is Holistic Homesteads, which will kind of be like the umbrella that my regenerative yoga lives under. And Holistic Homesteads is consulting and design business that I'm doing with my husband that basically we kind of come into your space and help you envision what it can look like to have a regenerative garden or homestead or way of living in your space so that the refuge and the healing that I feel for my home, it's like very much my home is set up like an oasis. You know, I kind of started with the actual home and creating that energy and then have expanded out into my yard. And it's so people come here and they're like, I feel like I'm on retreat. Even though it's, you know, I have two acres that I'm kind of living on right here and I manage a couple hundred acres outside of here and leased land. I I think it's really important to understand like you don't have to have a large space to have that sense of retreat and oasis within your home and have a a garden or a garden, um, a raised garden bed in your yard to have it be a regenerative process. So it's about putting those techniques into practice and then on top of the design and the building and the implementing of those systems that we help you do, there's also room for doing yoga and mindfulness practices and resonating with your ancestors and talking about your culture. And so that's a project that I've slowly been working on for the last year and it's kind of in the final stages and hoping to launch in the winter. And then, yeah, like I said, I work for Mind and Life. And so we're in the process of piloting a new virtual Mind and Life talk series which will bring very unique voices from the contemplative background, the action background, and the research background and academic background to kind of talk about social issues and the science behind it and art, contemplative artists too, how we use all of these things to kind of bridge to our greater humanity and and create compassion and human flourishing and just start to make sense of, of what's happening for people. You have a lot of amazing stuff coming up, things you're yeah. working on. Thank you for doing the work you do in the world, which I know is like deeper than work, right? And thanks for being who you are and just how you show up in the world and for us and for liberation and community. And thanks for for saying yes to this and, and being here today. Thank you. So good to be with you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. You can support Finding Refuge by rating it on iTunes and by sharing it with friends and beloveds. You can support my work, the work of skill in action creating justice in the world, by becoming a patron on Patreon. Visit my page there. It is Skill in Action. I hope you take care of yourself and that we take care of one another. Be well, friends. Thank you.